Um, just a couple things to bring to your attention before, uh, before we pray together. Uh, coming up on Wednesday, June 5th, you may have already seen this in your bulletin, but uh, not this Wednesday, but next week, Wednesday, uh, Michael's going to be doing a, a church-wide prayer and worship service, and uh, so all three services will be gathered together, and we're trying to do that once a quarter or so. You might, you might have been at the last one that we did. It's a, it's a great time together when the worship team is up here, so um, mark that on your calendars if you get a chance. And then one detail that we wanted you to know about is um, back on Tuesday night, we had an elder meeting, and we're just feeling the need to respond to what happened down in Oklahoma this last week, and knowing that quite a number of churches were destroyed, Christian lives were disrupted, people were displaced from homes. Um, I'm sure you saw the devastation on the news. And we have a benevolence fund. Um, it's called the Compassionate Care. When you look in your giving envelopes, you, you see that listed on there. It's one of the areas that you can give to. Um, the elders decided that in, in response to what happened down there, that we would send a gift from New Hope down to help a Christian ministry down there. Um, you might be familiar with the extension of the Billy Graham ministry that Franklin Graham started called Samaritan's Purse. Well, the day of the tornado or the day right immediately after Franklin Graham took um, teams into Oklahoma with semi-trucks full of water and bread and trying to pass out sandwiches. So we sent $1,000 from New Hope down to Samaritan's Purse to help feed and, and give water and shelter to people. So if you're kind of wondering how your church responds in situations like that, that's one particular response. We just wanted you to know that, okay? Well, we're going to be getting back into Ephesians, and um, I'm going to invite you to pray with me before we do that. Let's bow together. Oh, Lord God, I, I look forward to the day when I hear bongo drums in heaven. I do. I, I, I just think of the thousands of drums that will be played and the horns, and the cymbals, and the guitars, and our voices that'll be lifted. I don't even know if there'll be elephants and giraffes in a parade, but Father, I just think of your creation gathered around you, lifting a joyful noise because of what you've accomplished and who you are, and you're worthy. And so we sing. And because you're worthy, we turn our attention to your word. And we thank you that this weekend, because of the sacrifice of others, we can learn about you in freedom. Thank you, God, for men and women who have laid down their lives, that we can be here without a feeling of any reprisal. And we can talk about you. Thank you, Father, for the privilege we have for living in this country. I ask that you would focus our hearts, focus our minds, our thoughts, everything about us through the work of your Holy Spirit on who you are and your character and nature. I believe you want to speak to us individually. So Father, I ask that you would do that through your word right now. As we look at Ephesians 6, guide us. We ask that you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you've been here part of our study through Ephesians, we're 15 weeks into it, by the way, if you haven't been here recently, but... Um, here on week 15, we find ourselves in Ephesians 6, and I'm really looking forward to this particular section uh, because it gets into spiritual warfare. Ephesians 6.10 is where that starts. Well, today we're going to be in Ephesians 6.1, and, and you're only going to get half of my notes today because um, last night I was teaching through this, and I realized 
I ran out of time, so I took everything that I had set for the second half of the teaching, and I just said, I'm done. So you're going to know this is one of the shorter teachings I've ever done, and um, at some point, I'm just going to say, that's all I got, okay? So we'll stop at one point, but we're going to do Ephesians 6, 1 through 4 this morning, and here's uh, what we want to understand. In Ephesians 4, Paul said that we're supposed to be walking in a manner worthy of the high calling by which we've been called. We're supposed to conduct ourselves in a such a fashion that people will look at us and identify us as freaks. Okay? That got your attention. A few of you looked up when I said that. All right? That we would stand out from society in such a way that people would be able to identify us as belonging to God. Okay? That's what he says when he says, conduct yourself in a manner, because he goes on to explain what that looks like to conduct yourself in a manner that everybody can identify, that's a Christ follower. Not someone who just blends into society, but really stands apart. Now, we understood from what he said three weeks ago when we were together that we're supposed to be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. And we talked about what that meant in the fear of Christ. And then Paul went on to say in our time together at the end of chapter 5, two weeks ago, that that applies from husbands to wives, wives to husbands, that we're going to be in submission to each other. Today what we're going to look at is relationships in the home. How do parents respond and be in submission, and how do children respond and be in submission in a biblical fashion so that we understand what a godly home looks like? So clearly, Ephesians is a whole new way of thinking. It's a totally new dimension. And understand, this was being written to those pagans who were living in that Greek society, who were part of a culture that was totally devoid of God and corrupt to the core. And Paul wrote this note to them to say, this is what you're supposed to look like. So let me remind you of a quote from a couple weeks ago that I shared with you from Charles Haddon Spurgeon. And I told you he was a theologian that lived in the 1800s. He wanted us to get this concept in our mind. When the home is ruled according to God's word, angels might be asked to stay with us and they would not find themselves out of their element. You remember that from a couple weeks ago? Okay, so our home would be such an environment that angels who are used to being in the presence of God in heaven, if our home is governed in such a way that we function it according to God's word, they would feel comfortable there. Problem. The problem is very few homes are governed by God's word, and so the consequences are really, really tragic. So much of society has totally disregarded the scriptures that when they hear the things like we've been sharing over the last couple weeks and what we're about to look at this morning, they find these biblical truths to be really, really hard to accept because society has changed over a long period of time, and it, it, it's, it's been incremental As a matter of fact, the disintegration of our society around us has not just happened in the last 20 years. It goes back decades. And incrementally slow changes usually don't get noticed by people. It happened in ancient Rome as well. So to really understand what we're going to look at in Ephesians 1 this morning, or Ephesians 6, I'm going to have to take you back to the first century Rome, do a little bit of a history lesson with you so that we really understand who Paul's writing to, what's going on here. Because ultimately, whether or not you remember this from your days in school, you may have learned about Roman culture and understood that there was a time when Rome went out of existence. 
even though there's a city, Rome, today in Italy, the nation, the empire crumbled. And the reason they crumbled at almost 300 years after they existed was because the family disintegrated. And the family disintegrated incrementally slow. What you're going to see before your eyes this morning is the seed of how that happened and why Paul was writing to these people so that they would understand what God wanted them to know about keeping their family together. So before I can take you back to Rome first century, I have to go back further in time with you to the Hebrews when God first talked to Abraham. So think with me all the way back to the book of Genesis to the time when God began to talk to Abram who later became Abraham. And in Genesis 12, God said something that he had never said before. And the first time he ever said it, he said it to Abram about something he was going to do. Look with me on the screen at Genesis 12, verse 3. He said, Through you, Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now you think about that statement. I know you've read it before. If you've grown up in church, you're very familiar with it. God is telling Abraham, every single person who draws air on planet earth, every man, every woman, every child whose lungs are filled with oxygen are going to be blessed because what I'm going to do through you as a people who I'm going to call apart for myself if you will do things according to my plan. So what we know is that Israel was supposed to be a witnessing nation And not just a witnessing nation to the rest of the world, but they were supposed to be a witnessing people. And so not just a repository of God's truth where they would just take it in and bank it away like Fort Knox, but rather that they would take it in and then become a channel for God's truth and send it out to the whole world so that the whole world would be blessed. So they would know who God is. And God said, I've got a plan for how you're going to do this. And the very first step by which you're going to tell people about who I am is through your children. God, let me show you this in Deuteronomy 6 up on the screen. God talked to Moses, gave him the Ten Commandments. What you see before you in Deuteronomy 6 is just after God gave the commandments to the nation of Israel, this newly formed entity, and he said, here's what you're going to do first. The very first step is this, Deuteronomy 6, verse 7. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. So parents were to talk about God when they're walking to the marketplace, when they're going to the workplace, when they're sitting in the lazy boy recliner at home, when they're getting up out of bed in the morning, and when they're lying down at night. In other words, continually. Talking about who God is, His nature, and His character. And we're not talking about, thus saith the Lord, but rather working it into daily conversation. That was what God said is my plan. So they were to make it both verbal and visual for the kids so that He would pass it on from one generation to the next. Here's where the difficulty came in. The fall of man allowed sin nature to permeate us in such a way that God said, there's going to be a curse on you. And the curse caused actional behavior change in men and women. Men suddenly, because of the fall, became chauvinist. 
women tried to usurp the role of men. Children became disobedient to their parents. Parents began to abuse children. So we see right away that only where Christ is in control of a family can God's standards really be known. So when Spurgeon says a home that's governed by God's word can be such a beautiful place that angels from heaven can find themselves at home there, he's really talking about a home setting in which sin nature is pushed aside and God's nature permeates. That's why Paul starts off the way that he does in Ephesians 6.1. So if you have your Bibles open, go ahead and look at verse 1 with me. Because remember, he's writing to this pagan society who doesn't know anything about God factors in their life. They're new believers. And it says this right away, "'Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother, which is the first commandment with a promise.'" so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. So he's talking about another factor of submission here. We've already talked about men and women in submission. Now he's going to talk about children being in submission. And this word here, I know you're really thinking right away, well, he's talking about like, what, 12-year-old and under children? The word that's used here is tekna, and it actually means anybody who's been born, okay? All offspring, so in reality, if you've got a mama, he's talking about you. You, you. Do you have a mama? Were you born? Okay. If you were born and you have parents, this word children applies to adult children as well as adolescent and pre-adolescent children. So we understand sons and daughters are, are in many cases still under the roof of their parents' house and they're to honor and obey. But here's one thing I want you to see right away. Obey is action-oriented. Honor is attitude-oriented. So he's got both components going on here. And we understand there's a time when each of us are no longer under the authority of our parents once we marry. We set up our own household. We establish our own uh, form of structure. And there's a transition out from under the authority of the parents. But I want you to see this word obey so they really understand what it's telling you to do. Because adults and children here alike this morning, this applies to all of us no matter what stage you're at. So the word that's used here is hupakao. I talked about this two weeks ago. And this word obey literally means to hear under. There's a particular meaning. When, when Mark Kring was born and Richard and Ruth Kring raised him, myself, in their home, I was under the authority of my parents. So I was under the words of my dad to hear under and as a response to listening attentively to the things that my dad as the leader of the home said, I had to respond positively to what I heard. That's the biblical mandate. So children put themselves under the authority of their parents. Colossians speaks to this. Colossians 3.20 says, Be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. That means when you obey your mom and dad, even your aging parents, if you're an adult person this morning, you still earn favor from God when you listen attentively and you respond positively to the things that your parents ask you to do. Now, here's the question that always comes out of this situation. What if my mom and dad are not worthy what if I've got an ungodly dad? 
Or what if I've got an ungodly mom? What if they're not worthy of me honoring and obeying them? Well, there's only one exception in all of the Bible. And the, the one exception in which a person doesn't have to obey an ungodly person is when that ungodly person is calling you to do something that's contrary to the will of God. That's the only exception. And I can back that up from Scripture. Here's the example I want to give you. Peter and John are um, walking about in Jerusalem. First century, Jesus has been resurrected, and not only resurrected, he's already ascended to the Father in heaven. And Peter and John find themselves outside the temple, and they're very well aware that there's wanted posters put up around Jerusalem, not only asking for their arrest, but commanding people to no longer speak in the name of Jesus. So Peter and John, because Jesus told them to go into the uttermost parts of the earth and talk about him, they have a situation to deal with. They either have to listen to the ruling authority, the leaders of Israel in Jerusalem, or they have to listen to God. So they go into the temple and they begin talking openly about Jesus. The leaders of Israel approach them and come right to them and say, literally, Mark's vernacular, shut up. Stop talking about Jesus. If you don't stop talking about Jesus, we're going to throw you in prison and we're going to beat you. So this is Peter's response. Look with me on the screen. It comes from the book of Acts, Acts 4.19. Whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge, for we cannot stop speaking what we have seen and heard. See, that's the only exception in all of the Bible. When someone who is ungodly asks you to do something that is contrary to the will and the nature of God, that's the only exception by which you would not obey So whether godly or ungodly, it doesn't really matter unless they're asking you to do something contrary to God's will. So he ends this, Paul ends verse 1 by saying, for this is right. He's saying the basic reason for doing this is because it's God's declaration. God says it's right, so it's right. So he uses this word that's really affirmative. You'll see it in your notes and on the screen. It's the word diakos, and it means that which is exactly as it should be. Now, what Paul does is he quotes God's oldest law. God's oldest law for social relationships in the Bible goes all the way back to the Ten Commandments. Let me remind you of it up on the screen. This is where it comes from, Exodus 20, verse 12. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord God, your God, gives you. And this word honor is the exact same word that Paul uses in the New Testament. It's the word tamao. And here's what it means. You'll see it on the screen. To hold in the highest regard. So adult children here today and young children here today, you're commanded by God to hold your parents in the highest regard and respect. Now what we know for sure is a person who grows up with respect and obedience for their parents, they're going to be the persons who have foundations for respect for leaders in government They're going to be persons who have respect for those who are in authority over them throughout the course of their life and for the authority and the rights of others. But here's the reverse, and I saw this for years. Fifteen years living at Youth Haven Ranch, working with underprivileged children, I saw the reverse of this principle constantly. Children who are continually told they can do whatever they want and have their own way in everything 
produces constantly children who will mock their parents, who will mock their teachers, who will mock authorities, who will mock moral standards, they will mock the law, and they're going to mock society in general. So Paul uses this really strong word, honor, tamao, because he's quoting God, saying you've got to hold them in the highest respect, in the highest regard. Now this word honor encompasses not just regard for them, but also providing for your parents when they no longer can provide for themselves. You know where that comes from? Directly from Jesus. Jesus found himself into a discussion with Pharisees inside the temple walls, and they were chastising him for allowing the disciples to eat a meal without having washed their hands first, ceremonial washing. So the Pharisees come up, you can read about this in Matthew 15, but the Pharisees come up to him and say, what what are you doing letting your disciples eat this meal? They have not washed and cleansed as is our tradition. And Jesus said to them in response, you have invalidated the word of God in your life because you have denied your aging parents financial support when they needed it most. Matthew 15 speaks very specifically about that. In other words, this is what they did. Pharisees had a responsibility to care for their aging parents, but there was a certain fund they could park their money in and declare that that was money that was given to God. So when an aging parent would come to someone who was of Pharisaic nature, standard, which was usually a pretty successful person, they could say, I I need your help. I can't pay rent. I I can't buy groceries. The Pharisee would respond to them, I'm sorry you're starving, but you know the money I was going to give to you? I've already given it to God. So Jesus said, you've invalidated the word of God in your life when you won't even help your aging parents. So this word honor, it it goes beyond just respect. It goes beyond just listening to them. It's much, much bigger than that. So Jesus made that really, really clear. So here's where I understand God has a plan for us, and you're going to see a blueprint in your notes this morning. If you look at it, you'll see some bullet points, a blueprint for how God wants us to pass on his instruction. And it's very specific. He passes it on from one generation to the next. Now, we know that Jesus, although he was God, was a man. And yet, as a man, he was free from sin, But even as a child, Jesus had to grow. And so we get this really obscure verse in Luke. Luke's the only one that records it. And he tells us what Jesus was like as a teenager. He's gone to the temple. He's made a dedication. Did what every 12-year-old would do at that point in time. And then Luke goes on to write this in chapter 2, verse 51. He says, Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. So we would say... Jesus grew intellectually, Jesus grew physically, Jesus grew spiritually, and Jesus grew socially. So here's the blueprint. You'll see it in your notes. Every child's going to grow intellectually. They're just going to. They're going to take in information. Baby comes into the world, his mind is blank. So Jesus grew in wisdom. That's the intellect. And whatever the child must have known, he had to be taught. Now, obviously, he's God's son, but yet he grew in wisdom. And then we're told every child must grow physically because Jesus grew in stature. So we nurture and we care for children. 
But then it says every child must also grow socially because it says Jesus grew in stature and in favor with God and man. That tells me that God knows that our nature is to be really selfish. So when my mom got me together with other little kids my age, and I'm maybe six years old, and I would play with other little boys, and they would give us these little green plastic toy soldiers to conduct little war games with. Some of you guys know what I'm talking about. My mom would always say to me, Mark, play nice, because she knew that my nature was to gather up all those toy soldiers and go over in the corner and play by myself. Okay, we're, by our very nature, we're selfish. And it requires us to be taught not to be selfish in order to grow in favor with men. So we see Jesus growing intellectually, going physically, and growing socially because there's a dominant attitude among us in which we're selfish, so the parents had to teach. And then we see this one where he grew in favor with God. Now, Jesus being God's son, we don't quite understand how that all worked. But what we know for sure about ourselves is children do not know God naturally. They just don't. They're not inclined to know his love and to obey him. So a child must be taught about God, must be taught about his nature and his care. That's why God said back in Deuteronomy 6, talk about them on the way to your workplace. Talk to them about me when you rise up and when you sit down and when you're in your house to have conversation. And he gives us a reason to do it. He says that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. Quality of life and quantity of life. And here's why that's really odd. That promise was originally made to the nation of Israel. Now, promises that were made to the Jews in Israel didn't necessarily just transfer over automatically to the New Testament Christian church. Every covenant blessing that God gave to Abraham didn't just necessarily transfer over, but yet Paul is quoting this, that you're gonna, it's going to be well with you and you may be living long on the earth. This original promise that was made to Israel is now made to the church, and he's stating a principle here. When children, and I'm talking techna, adult children and minor children, obey and honor, they avoid things that could shorten their life. Interesting principle. Now, here's where the transition comes in, and one of the reasons why you're going to find why I'm teaching short today, is he makes a hard shift, and he starts talking about dads ticking off their kids. He goes to verse 4, and he says, Fathers, you have a capacity to make your children angry. So look with me at that. Verse 4, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Now, we're talking from the submission of children to the submission of a father now, the submission of parents. And it's a negative command. Now, most of God's commands are positive. And here we find a negative command. And this, mind you, is a totally new concept for the first century people who were living in this pagan environment in Ephesus. And I want to help you understand this by taking you back to first century Rome. A a father's love for his children is really, really hard for people to imagine at this period of time because of a law that was in effect called the patria protestus. And and it's it's a, a Roman term. But it essentially meant this. A father at the period of time that we're talking about had virtual life and death authority over who in his household 
would stay in his household. Meaning this, if a man was married to a woman and he was mad at her, he could kill her and he answered to no one. He could kill his children and answer to no one. He could kill his slaves and answer to no one. The patria protestus protected him. So here's where it became even more complicated. When a newborn child came into the household, because of the patria protestus, a child who was just born, the mother would present it to one of the slaves, one of the attendants in the house, a midwife, would carry the child and place the child on the floor at the front door of the house in front of the father's feet. And the father would walk up and examine the child, and if the father bent over and picked the child up and cradled it, the child was welcomed into the house and brought into the home. If the father walked over and examined the child and didn't like what he saw, he could turn around and walk away. The child remained on the floor until evening. When someone from the marketplace would come by with a wagon and mules and pick up the child and throw it into the back of the wagon and take it into the center of the marketplace that evening where they auctioned off newborn children, either for prostitution or for slavery. You understand this is the society that Paul is writing into? This is the pagan environment of whom he's saying, you live in a world which is totally contrasted to the principles of God, and you're being called out into this new form of life, this new way of thinking. And fathers, you have the potential for provoking your children to anger. Now, here's an example for you. It comes out of an archaeological piece that was found where a father wrote a, a letter to his wife from Alexandria. I want you to see the quote up on the screen so you can really see what's going on here in their thinking. It comes like this from Hilarion. He said, Heartiest greetings. Note that we are still even now in Alexandria. Do not worry if when all others return, I remain in Alexandria. I beg and beseech you to take care of the little child, and as soon as we receive wages, I will send them to you. If good luck to you, you have another child. If it is a boy, let it live. If it is a girl, expose it. Expose it meant to leave it at the threshold of the door, exposed to the elements, regardless of the time of year. That's the environment. It's callous and it's chilling. So because the father is the dominant figure in the first century, he's the parent who would most often provoke his children to wrath. But a mother's capable of doing the same thing, obviously because she runs the household. She can provoke the children to anger as well. Now in the Greek language, provoke to anger is written in a present tense form, meaning something that's going on and on and on and on. We're not talking about a momentary loss of temper or, or someone loses control of their emotions. We're talking about something that's repeated to the degree that it causes deep-seated anger and it boils over into hostility, causing that child to not really care whether or not the parent talks about the things of God when they walk along the wayside and when they go to work and when they rise up and when they sit down because a child that's in that situation is going to totally tune out that parent and say, I don't really care about your faith. I have no interest in it. So in 2013, how does that relate? Well, often I, I meet individuals, especially parents, who think they're doing things for their child's own good 
and they're under the delusion that what they think they're doing is building a closer relationship when in fact they're actually distancing themselves. And so I put some common causes of provoking children to wrath in, in 2013 terms in your notes this morning. You won't see it on the screen, but just let me share a couple of them with you. These, it's not an exhaustive list. But I just came up with four. Um, I meet parents who overly restrict. They, they control everything about that child, where they go, what they do. They never trust them, and they're continually questioning their judgment, and it builds barriers, and it causes the kids to just want to separate away from their parents. Uh, here's another one, favoritism among siblings. And I know you would never do this in your household, but there's, there's parents who compare children to other children. Why can't you get grades like so-and-so? Or why don't you dress like, why don't you have friends like this one? And it causes the kids to have deep resentment. And it's devastating to the child who is less favored. It doesn't build up their esteem, it tears it down. Here's a third one. Pushing achievements beyond reasonable boundaries. Now, again, I know you would never do this, but we all know the father who would stand at the sporting events and yell at the referees, thinking they're doing favor for their children by interposing themselves into a game, all right? There's dads that we've all met throughout the course of the years of our kids growing up whom everybody wanted to distance themselves from because um, they're trying to live vicariously through their son or daughter's athletic achievements, And then there's the women who try and live vicariously through their son or daughter's academic achievements or their career achievements. And they push the kids beyond reasonable boundaries. And and they get to the point where they can't even please their parents. And that leads to this fourth one, discouragement. When children are never encouraged, they're always told what's wrong, they're never told what's right, and they soon lose hope. Those are just some 2013 ways of provoking children to anger. So Paul makes this nice transition Instead of the negative command, he moves over into the positive command. He says, rather, you've got to build them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. And that's where we're going to end this morning. I'm going to end with two Greek words. And I want you to see them so that I can put them in real context for you of how Lori and I apply this in our own life. The first word that's used here is padia. And this word um, discipline has to do with the systematic training of children. In other words, you've thought out a process. And there's an overall picture about how you're going to talk to them about the things of God. So discipline has to do with the overall training of the children. And it includes punishment, but not just punishment. Now, let me explain it this way. Um, In the early 1990s, when PlayStation first came on the scene, my sons were really pounding me about wanting PlayStation in our house. Maybe some of you lived through that era. And um, it was so popular among the friends, they kept saying, Dad, we're the only one. We're the only one that we know of that doesn't have PlayStation in our house. Can't we please get it? I think Adam was probably about 12 years of age uh, before I caved in and said, okay, we'll get PlayStation because in the back of my mind, I was going to use it as a tool. And so uh, we didn't watch TV in the evenings at our house on on school nights. And so having PlayStation on on school nights was a a no-brainer. We just weren't going to do it. So we told them we would be able to use PlayStation on the weekends. And on Saturdays, after you've done your chores and you've checked with us on your list of things that you had to do, you can have 45 minutes to maybe 60 minutes on PlayStation. And they kind of figured out how they could double up their time by combining their brother's minutes with their minutes. But anyways, they got real crafty about it. So um, once we got through the Saturday thing, then obviously Sunday afternoon came around. And they wanted to do it on Sunday afternoon because it was downtime. 
So this is what I devised. I talked with Lori about it, and we decided that this would be a good padilla, a good discipline, a systematic training of the children. What I told them that they could do was they could find a passage in the Bible, and they could trade one Bible verse for one minute. So if they wanted 15 minutes on PlayStation, they would find 15 verses to read. And I didn't just leave it there. What I said to them was, I want you to choose a passage in the Bible that is very specific to something that you're interested in, and I want you to come back to me and tell me how it applies to your life. See, that's the concept behind Padilla. So Derek or Adam would go and they would read maybe 60 verses, and then they would tell me what they read and why they read it and why it applied to their life. In a crafty way, what I was causing them to do was take the Word of God and apply it into their own heart in order to achieve something that they really wanted. So as parents, we have to be as wise as serpents and as harmless as doves, okay, in in order to help our kids understand who God is. So this next word really applies. When it says the instruction of the Lord, it's this last word I'm going to leave you with, nuthesia. It's a literal putting in the mind, helping kids to see the big picture of who God is because we live in a wicked and perverse generation. So whether you're an uncle or an aunt this morning, you're a grandparent, you're a parent with younger children in the home, or maybe you'll be a parent yourself one day, this is really practical stuff that God wants you to know because we're a people who have been called out of a pagan society, just like the Ephesians, and we live among a wicked generation. And so we have to stand apart so that people can say, there's something different about that person. And you can say, it's because we live in a household that governs itself according to God's word. That's our purpose. So that's it. That's all I got for you this morning, okay? So let's pray together. Father, I I thank you for how practical your word is. 2,000 years later, and it still works in 2013 just as much as it did for those who are living in the first century. God, I ask that you would take what you've shown us this morning and you would apply it to our hearts, that this week even, that we might be able to speak into someone else's life and encourage them about their walk with you, and that we would correct ourselves where correction is necessary. But God, most of all, we just come out of this time right now just thanking you for life in Jesus and for our relationship with you. And we ask all this in Jesus' mighty name, amen.